part one of his last bow from his last bow this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by zachary brewster geis his last bow by sir arthur conan doyle his last bow part one it was nine o'clock at night upon the second of august the most terrible August in the history of the world. One might have thought already that God's curse hung heavy over a degenerate world, for there was an awesome hush and a feeling of vague expectancy in the sultry and stagnant air. The sun had long set, but one blood-red gash like an open wound lay low in the distant west. Above the stars were shining brightly, and below the lights of the shipping glimmered in the bay. The two famous Germans stood beside the stone parapet of the garden walk, with the long, low, heavily gabled house behind them, and they looked down upon the broad sweep of the beach at the foot of the great chalk cliff on which von Bork, like some wandering eagle, had perched himself four years before. They stood with their heads close together, talking in low, confidential tones. From below the two glowing ends of their cigars might have been the smouldering eyes of some malignant fiend looking down in the darkness. A remarkable man, this von Bork, a man who could hardly be matched among all the devoted agents of the Kaiser. It was his talents which had first recommended him for the English mission, the most important mission of all, but since he had taken it over, those talents had become more and more manifest to the half-dozen people in the world who were really in touch with the truth. One of these was his present companion, Baron von Herling, the chief secretary of the legation, whose huge one-hundred-horsepower Ben's car was blocking the country lane as it waited to waft its owner back to London. "'So far as I can judge the trend of events, you will probably be back in Berlin within the week,' the secretary was saying. "'When you get there, my dear von Bock, I think you will be surprised at the welcome you will receive.' I happen to know what is thought in the highest quarters of your work in this country. He was a huge man, the secretary, deep, broad, and tall, with a slow, heavy fashion of speech, which had been his main asset in his political career. Von Bork laughed. They are not very hard to deceive, he remarked. A more docile, simple folk could not be imagined. I don't know about that, said the other thoughtfully. They have strange limits, and one must learn to observe them. It is that surface simplicity of theirs which makes a trap for the stranger. One's first impression is that they are entirely soft. Then one comes suddenly upon something very hard, and you know that you have reached the limit, and must adapt yourself to the fact. They have, for example, their insular conventions, which must simply be observed. Meaning good form, and that sort of thing, von Bork sighed, as one who had suffered much. Meaning British prejudice in all its queer manifestations. As an example, I may quote one of my own worst blunders. I can afford to talk of my blunders, for you know my work well enough to be aware of my successes. It was on my first arrival. I was invited to a weekend gathering at the country house of a cabinet minister. The conversation was amazingly indiscreet. Von Bork nodded. "'I've been there,' said he dryly. 
Exactly. Well, I naturally sent a resume of the information to Berlin. Unfortunately, our good Chancellor is a little heavy-handed in these matters, and he transmitted a remark which showed that he was aware of what had been said. This, of course, took the trail straight up to me. You've no idea of the harm that it did me. There was nothing soft about our British hosts on that occasion, I can assure you. I was two years living it down. Now you, with this sporting pose of yours— no, no, don't call it a pose. A pose is an artificial thing. This is quite natural. I'm a born sportsman. I enjoy it. Well, that makes it the more effective. You yacht against them, you hunt with them, you play polo, you match them in every game your foreign hand takes the prize at Olympia. I have even heard that you go the length of boxing with the young officers. What is the result? Nobody takes you seriously. You are a good old sport, quite a decent fellow for a German. A hard-drinking, night-club, knock-about-town, devil-may-care young fellow. And all the time this quiet country house of yours is the centre of half the mischief in England, and the sporting squire, the most astute secret service man in Europe. Genius, my dear von Bork, genius! You flatter me, Baron. But certainly I may claim that my four years in this country have not been unproductive. I've never shown you my little store. Would you mind stepping in for a moment? The door of the study opened straight on to the terrace. Von Bork pushed it back, and, leading the way, he clicked the switch of the electric light. He then closed the door behind the bulky form which followed him, and carefully adjusted the heavy curtain over the latticed window. Only when all these precautions had been taken and tested did he turn his sunburned aquiline face to his guest. "'Some of my papers have gone,' said he. "'When my wife and the household left yesterday for Flushing, they took the less important with them. I must, of course, claim the protection of the embassy for the others.' "'Your name has already been filed as one of the personal suite. There will be no difficulties for you or your baggage. Of course it is just possible that we may not have to go. England may leave France to her fate.' We are sure that there is no binding treaty between them. And Belgium? Yes, and Belgium, too. Von Bork shook his head. I don't see how that could be. There is a definite treaty there. She could never recover from such a humiliation. She would at least have peace for the moment. But her honour? Tut, my dear sir, we live in a utilitarian age. Honour is a medieval conception— Besides, England is not ready. It is an inconceivable thing, but even our special war-tax of fifty million, which one would think made our purpose as clear as if we had advertised it on the front page of the Times, has not roused these people from their slumbers. Here and there one hears a question. It is my business to find an answer. Here and there, also, there is an irritation. It is my business to soothe it. But I can assure you that so far as the essentials go, the storage of munitions, the preparation for submarine attack, the arrangements for making high explosives. Nothing is prepared. How, then, can England come in, especially when we have stirred her up such a devil's brew of Irish civil war, window-breaking furies, and God knows what to keep her thoughts at home? She must think of her future. Ah, that is another matter. I fancy that in the future— we have our own very definite plans about England, and that your information will be very vital to us. It is to-day or to-morrow with Mr. John Bull. If he prefers to-day, we are perfectly ready. If it is to-morrow, 
we shall be more ready still. I should think they would be wiser to fight with allies than without them, but that is their own affair. This week is their week of destiny. But you were speaking of your papers. He sat in the armchair with the light shining upon his broad, bald head, while he puffed sedately at his cigar. The large oak-panelled book-lined room had a curtain hung in the further corner. When this was drawn, it disclosed a large, brass-bound safe. Von Bork detached a small key from his watch-chain, and after some considerable manipulation of the lock, he swung open the heavy door. "'Look,' said he, standing clear with a wave of his hand. The light shone vividly into the opened safe, and the secretary of the embassy gazed with an absorbed interest at the rows of stuffed pigeonholes with which it was furnished. Each pigeonhole had its label, and his eyes as he glanced along them read a long series of such titles as Fords, Harbor Defenses, Aeroplanes, Ireland, Egypt, Portsmouth Forts, The Channel, Rosyth, and a score of others. Each compartment was bristling with papers and plans. Colossal, said the secretary. Putting down his cigar, he softly clapped his fat hands. And all in four years, Baron. Not such a bad show for the hard-drinking, hard-riding country squire. But the gem of my collection is coming, and there is the setting all ready for it. He pointed to a space over which Naval Signals was printed. But you have a good dossier there already. Out of date and waste paper. The Admiralty in some way got the alarm, and every code has been changed. It was a blow, Baron, the worst setback in my whole campaign. But thanks to my checkbook and the good Altamont, all will be well to-night. The Baron looked at his watch and gave a guttural exclamation of disappointment. Well, I really can wait no longer. You can imagine that things are moving at present in Carlton Terrace, and that we have all to be at our posts. I'd hope to be able to bring news of your great coup. Did Altamont name no hour? Von Bork pushed over a telegram. We'll come without fail to-night, and bring new sparking plugs. Altamont. Sparking plugs, eh? You see, he poses as a motor expert, and I keep a full garage. In our code, everything likely to come up is named after some spare part. If he talks of a radiator, it is a battleship, of an oil pump, a cruiser, and so on. Sparking plugs are naval signals. From Portsmouth at midday, said the secretary, examining the superscription. By the way, what did you give him? Five hundred pounds for this particular job. Of course, he has a salary as well. The greedy rogue. They are useful, these traitors, but I grudge them their blood money. I grudge Altamont nothing. He is a wonderful worker. If I pay him well, at least he delivers the goods, to use his own phrase. Besides, he is not a traitor. I assure you that our most pan-Germanic junker is a sucking dove in his feelings towards England as compared with a real bitter Irish-American. Oh, an Irish-American! If you heard him talk, you would not doubt it. Sometimes I assure you I can hardly understand him. He seems to have declared war on the king's English, as well as on the English king. Must you really go? He may be here at any moment. No, I'm sorry, but I have already overstayed my time. We shall expect you early to-morrow, and when you get that signal-book through the little door on the Duke of York's steps, 
you can put a triumphant finis to your record in England. What? Toquet? He indicated a heavily sealed, dust-covered bottle, which stood with two high glasses upon a salver. May I offer you a glass before your journey? No, thanks, but it looks like revelry. Altamont has a nice taste in vines, and he took a fancy to my toquet. He is a touchy fellow and needs humouring in small things. I have to study him, I assure you. They had strolled out onto the terrace again, and along it to the further end, where at a touch from the baron's chauffeur, the great car shivered and chuckled. So are the lights of Harwich, I suppose, said the secretary, pulling on his dust-coat. How still and peaceful it all seems. There may be other lights within the week, and the English coast a less tranquil place. The heavens, too, may not be quite so peaceful, if all that the good Zeppelin promises us comes true. By the way, who's that? Only one window showed a light behind them. In it there stood a lamp, and beside it, seated at a table, was a dear old ruddy-faced woman in a country cap. She was bending over her knitting, and stopping occasionally to stroke a large black cat upon a stool beside her. "'That is Martha, the only servant I have left.' The secretary chuckled. "'She might almost personify Britannia,' said he, "'with her complete self-absorption and general air of comfortable somnolence. "'Well, au revoir, von Bork!' With a final wave of his hand he sprang into the car, and a moment later the two golden cones from the headlights shot forward through the darkness. The secretary lay back in the cushions of the luxurious limousine, with his thoughts so full of the impending European tragedy that he hardly observed that as his car swung round the village street it nearly passed over a little ford coming in the opposite direction. Von Bork walked slowly back to the study when the last gleams of the motor lamps had faded into the distance. As he passed, he observed that his old housekeeper had put out her lamp and retired. It was a new experience to him, the silence and darkness of his widespread house, for his family and household had been a large one. It was a relief to him, however, to think that they were all in safety, and that, but for that one old woman who had lingered in the kitchen, he had the whole place to himself. There was a good deal of tidying up to do inside his study, and he set himself to do it until his keen, handsome face was flushed with the heat of the burning papers. A leather valise stood beside his table, and into this he began to pack very neatly and systematically the precious contents of his safe. He had hardly got started with the work, however, when his quick ears caught the sound of a distant car. Instantly he gave an exclamation of satisfaction, strapped up the valise, shut the safe, locked it, and hurried out onto the terrace. He was just in time to see the lights of a small car come to a halt at the gate. A passenger sprang out of it and advanced swiftly towards him, while the chauffeur, a heavily built elderly man with a grey moustache, settled down like one who resigns himself to a long vigil. "'Well?' asked von Bork eagerly, running forward to meet his visitor. For answer, the man waved a small brown paper parcel triumphantly above his head. "'You can give me the glad hand tonight, mister,' he cried. "'I'm bringing home the bacon at last.' "'The signals?' "'Same as I said in my cable. Every last one of them. Semaphore, lamp code, Marconi. A copy, mind you, not the original. That was too dangerous. But it's the real goods, and you can lay to that.' He slapped the German upon the shoulder with a rough familiarity from which the other winced. "'Come in,' he said. "'I'm all alone in the house. I was only waiting for this. 
Of course a copy is better than the original. If an original were missing, they would change the whole thing. You think it's all safe about the copy? The Irish-American had entered the study and stretched his long limbs from the armchair. He was a tall, gaunt man of sixty, with clear-cut features and a small goatee beard which gave him a general resemblance to the caricatures of Uncle Sam. A half-smoked, sodden cigar hung from the corner of his mouth, and as he sat down he struck a match and relit it. "'Making ready for a move?' he remarked as he looked round him. "'Say, mister,' he added, as his eyes fell upon the safe from which the curtain was now removed, "'you don't tell me you keep your papers in that?' "'Why not?' "'Gosh, in a wide-open contraption like that? And they reckon you to be some spy. Why, a Yankee crook would be into that with a can-opener. If I'd known that any letter of mine was going to lie loose in a thing like that, I'd have been a mug to write to you at all.' "'It would puzzle any crook to force that safe.' von Bork answered. You won't cut that metal with any tool. But the lock? No, it's a double combination lock. You know what that is? Search me, said the American. Well, you need a word as well as a set of figures before you can get the lock to work. He rose and showed a double radiating disc round the keyhole. This outer one is for the letters, the inner one for the figures. Well, well, that's fine. "'So it's not quite as simple as you thought. "'It was four years ago that I had it made, "'and what do you think I chose for the word and figures?' "'It's beyond me.' "'Well, I chose August for the word, "'and 1914 for the figures, and here we are.' "'The American's face showed his surprise and admiration. "'My, but that was smart. "'You had it down to a fine thing.' "'Yes, a few of us even then could have guessed the date. "'Here it is, and I'm shutting down tomorrow morning.' "'Well, I guess you'll have to fix me up also. "'I'm not staying in this gall-darned country all on my lonesome. "'In a week or less, from what I see, "'John Bull will be on his hind legs and fair ramping. "'I'd rather watch him from over the water.' "'But you're an American citizen?' "'Well, so is Jack James an American citizen, "'but he's doing time in Portland all the same.' It cuts no ice with a British copper to tell him you're an American citizen. It's British law and order over here, says he. By the way, mister, talking of Jack James, it seems to me you don't do much to cover your men. What do you mean? Von Bork asked sharply. Well, you are their employer, ain't you? It's up to you to see that they don't fall down, but they do fall down. And when did you ever pick them up? There's James. It was James's own fault. You know that yourself. He was too self-willed for the job. James was a bonehead, I give you that. Then there was Hollis. The man was mad. Well, he went a bit woozy toward the end. It's enough to make a man bug-house when he has to play a part from morning to night with a hundred guys all ready to set the coppers wise to him. But now there is Steiner. Von Bork started violently, and his ruddy face turned a shade paler. What about Steiner? Well, they've got him, that's all. They raided his store last night, and he and his papers are all in Portsmouth jail. You'll go off, and he, poor devil, will have to stand the racket and lucky if he gets off with his life. That's why I want to get over the water as soon as you do. Von Bork was a strong, self-contained man, but it was easy to see that this news had shaken him. How could they have got on to Steiner, he muttered. That's the worst blow yet. "'Well, you nearly had a worse one, for I believe they are not far off me.' "'You don't mean that.' "'Sure thing. 
My landlady down Frattenway had some inquiries, and when I heard of it I guessed it was time for me to hustle. But what I want to know, mister, is how the coppers know these things. Steiner is the fifth man you've lost since I signed on with you, and I know the name of the sixth if I don't get a move on. How do you explain it, and ain't you ashamed to see your men go down like this? Von Bork flushed crimson. How dare you speak in such a way? If I didn't dare things, mister, I wouldn't be in your service. But I'll tell you straight what is in my mind. I've heard that with you German politicians, when an agent has done his work, you are not sorry to see him put away. Von Bork sprang to his feet. Do you dare to suggest that I have given away my own agents? I don't stand for that, mister. But there's a stool pigeon or a cross somewhere, and it's up to you to find out where it is. Anyhow, I am taking no more chances. It's me for little Holland, and the sooner the better. Von Bork had mastered his anger. We have been allies too long to quarrel now at the very hour of victory, he said. You've done splendid work and taken risks, and I can't forget it. By all means go to Holland, and you can get a boat from Rotterdam to New York. No other line will be safe a week from now. I'll take that book and pack it with the rest. The American held the small parcel in his hand, but made no motion to give it up. "'What about the dough?' he asked. "'The what?' "'The boodle, the reward, the five hundred pounds. The gunner turned damn nasty at the last, and I had to square him with an extra hundred dollars, or it would have been Nitsky for you and me. "'Nothing doin', says he, and he meant it too, but the last hundred did it. It's cost me two hundred pounds from first to last, so it isn't likely I'd give it up without getting my wad.' Von Bork smiled with some bitterness. "'You don't seem to have a very high opinion of my honour, said he. "'You want the money before you give up the book.' "'Well, mister, it is a business proposition.' "'All right, have it your way.' He sat down at the table and scribbled a cheque, which he tore from the book, but he refrained from handing it to his companion. "'After all, since we are to be on such terms, Mr. Altamont,' said he, I don't see why I should trust you any more than you trust me. Do you understand? He added, looking back over his shoulder at the American. There's the check upon the table. I claim the right to examine that parcel before you pick the money up. The American passed it over without a word. Von Bork undid a winding of string and two wrappers of paper. Then he sat gazing for a moment in silent amazement at a small blue book which lay before him. Across the cover was printed in golden letters, Practical Handbook of Bee Culture. Only for one instant did the master spy glare at this strangely irrelevant inscription. The next he was gripped at the back of his neck by a grasp of iron, and a chloroformed sponge was held in front of his writhing face. End of Part One of His Last Bow